Good morning, Genesis. How y'all doing? Good. I am really actually excited to be here. Um, in Judges, it is brutality, as you guys are well aware. You've been in it for quite a journey now, and uh, I'm humbled to get the chance to continue that journey. Uh, my wife and daughter are back here as well. I'm not going to make them wave, but you can look around until you see people you don't recognize. That's them. Um, and so we're, we're glad to be here. I've got a, an affinity for this church. Hans and I begin to know each other over the summer, had coffee several times. We're graduating to lunch tomorrow, so Thai food. It's going to be good. Uh, most summer evenings have been in, in, in his Starbucks office. Uh, but beyond that, I know you guys know Matt Brantner. Matt and I go back almost 20 years, the very first year of our church's existence. Matt was our youth worship leader at a coffee shop. Who knew? At a coffee shop on Kirkendall that's no longer there called His Word or High Sword, depending on how you read the sign. Uh, and so Matt, he went to our first camp. He was one of my sponsors on our first ever summer camp, and he and I have been friends ever since. And then Nolan back there in Brittany, I, was, I had the great privilege of being their youth pastor at Creek's End, and so they're very dear to us as well. And so that's the connection beyond the things that are happening in 2023, um, and I, I, we're just glad to be here. I'm super glad to be here. The youth partnership is going ex- just exceedingly well. Uh, that's just been a blessing from God. And so please, church, continue to pray for that, that God would produce fruit in the ways that he wants to. But it's been a real encouragement to us and our new youth pastor, Andrew, and it's just, it's just going really, really, really well. Judges. This is indeed a, uh, a thick and not very encouraging passage. Hans is like, man, we, every, every Sunday we, we choose an excerpt of the, of the passage and do a, a reading after worship. Pick one. I was like, oh, man, these are rough. Like, there's nothing super encouraging here to read, but that's where we're going to be. I do want to start with this, though. In my early 20s, um, before I knew what the Lord was doing in my life in a call to ministry, I worked a lot of odd jobs, usually uh, getting a tan, if you, can, if you can go with that. It was always outside. It was always hard. And I had a, a stretch where I was helping run a landscaping and irrigation crew. And I found myself on a, at a house leading a crew of, of putting in a sprinkler system. Now, before... Don't call me to put in your sprinkler system. I don't know what I'm doing, okay? Like, I was totally winging it then, as this story will totally uh, tell on me for. We were, um, most of the sprinkler system was on one side of the house, and the client wanted to go, he didn't want to pay for a second system, so he wanted to go under the driveway to be able to get that last stretch of grass, last stretch of grass. And so it was our job to figure out how to get pipe onto the driveway. And so apparently the way you do that is you dig a pretty large hole and then get a pipe into that hole, put caps on both ends, get a sledgehammer, and just start beating it through the dirt until it makes its way long enough past where the driveway would be. You then dig another big hole, find that pipe, and then you can tie into it. So this was our goal. And so it's just brutally back-breaking labor, and, and boom, boom, sledgehammer over and over and over in 95-degree heat, you can imagine. It was just terrible. And, and we got it to where the pipe should have been under the driveway, and then we start digging our hole to find the other end of the pipe. And we keep digging our hole, and we keep digging our hole, and it is nowhere to be found. Essentially, what we figured out happened is when they poured the concrete for the driveway, it wasn't necessarily beautiful and flat underneath, and so there was, there was at some point a bow in it that that pipe sort of hit, and then started going downhill. And so we ended up having to dig eight feet 
before we found the pipe and then be able to get in that hole and work on it. So can you imagine the size of the hole that this body was able to get in it and then work on pipe? So we did. This massive undertaking, we're two days into this job, it's miserable, we all want to be gone from it. And and we get down there, we tie in, send the pipe eight feet up so it can become a sprinkler system, the least good job ever done by any, um, once again, don't call me to put in your irrigation system, this is what will happen in your yard. And then we made a fatal mistake. Uh, Anybody who's worked with pipe, you know that when you put the pipe together, there's this can of stuff they call pipe glue that essentially melts the pipe a little bit, just a little bit, and then you can stick the other pipe on it, and when it, as it cools, it melts together, and it becomes one pipe. Well, all the way down in that eight-foot hole, we climb out, everything's tied together, and we look back down, and we realize there's a can of pipe glue that was almost empty, that had sort of tumped over at the bottom of that hole, and me and the other idiot 21-year-old look down there and go, ah, it's not that big a deal. I'm not going back in there. We're done. Throw, throw the dirt back on. And so we put all the dirt back on, lay some sod, thinking we're done with this house. And then a week later, our boss, the owner of said irrigation company, gets a call about this messy yard. Well, as you have probably already put together, that pipe glue wasn't quite empty. And it spilled into the dirt around it and eventually found the pipe and just ate, slowly ate a hole in this pipe. And then for the next week, as this guy ran his sprinkler system the water level just began to rise to the surface. By the time we get there eight days later, it is a soup. And now we have to fix the problem we created by digging out wet dirt and mud three feet wide, eight feet down. It was three times the work than it ever was before. And and so why do I tell you that story? Happening beneath the surface is this corruption eating away. And it's a picture of what sin does. We think that sin is hidden sometimes. We think that sin may not be that big a deal because it's so far below the surface and no one around me can see it right away, but it is eating and it is creating a mess and a problem that that we are not prepared for. And it's creating a mess that was worse than the mess than we began with. And when we look at the book of Judges, we kind of see this played out. And I know that you, you have, you've looked at six different judges now, and I know that you've seen the introduction to the book, and I know that it's been handled so well. And we've just seen this cycle in the, in, in the people of Israel throughout the book of Judges of, of sin and judgment and repentance and deliverance and peace and sin. And as we look at the history of the people of Israel, and we look specifically with a microscope in the book of Judges, we see this pattern of, of, of sin that is corrupt and it's eating away at their roots. It's eating away at everything that they are producing wickedness upon wickedness upon wickedness. Where even at the beginning when there was no king in Israel and yet the people obeyed and, and then they, they sinned and they came back, the fall kept getting further and further and further until we read about Samson, the, the wickedest of all the judges. That's the timeline, that's the spiral, that is the pattern that sin, unchecked sin, creates in our life. And when there is unchecked sin in our life, it is because we have, like the Israelites in the book of Judges, absolutely rejected the authority in the word of God. They they knew the word of God, they knew what it said, they even agreed to it. But then they just outright rejected it. And the sin just began to eat at their roots, to eat at their 
poor. And so before we get into our passage today, we're going to reread Judges 17, 1 through 6, and then some other things. Just, just take us back to the beginning for a couple of reminders so we know where we are. All things I'm sure have been covered in here multiple times, but I'm a preacher and I can't help myself. So let's talk about them again. After Joshua led the, the initial conquest of the promised land and he was near his death, he warned the people again. And we get into Joshua 24, and it's that really famous passage. And he says, listen, I'm, I'm at the end. So you're going to have to choose. Choose for yourself who you will serve, the Lord who brought us out of Egypt or these pagan gods who surround us. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, is what Joshua said. And the people said, we will never serve another god. And Joshua goes, uh, yeah, you will. You're not able to serve him. You're going to really blow it. And they're like, no, we're not. We promise. And he said, okay, on your own head be it. And they swore more vows. They erected these stones to remember the vows that they, that they swore, and Joshua just basically warned him. He said, listen, if you, if you divert from this, it's not going to go well. God will do the things he promised he would do when his people disobeyed. He will send invading armies. He will, he will bring crushing defeat upon you so that you will repent. Just know that that is coming. So then Joshua dies, but the conquest continues. Judah, Simeon. Joseph, these tribes, all for the most part obey God and see the success. They go into the, the lands that were given them. They drive out the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Amorites, and they see success. These three tribes at the beginning, for the most part, saw a tract of obedience. But then we get about halfway through Judges 1. If you remember, we start seeing these other tribes listed and how they absolutely blew it. And in that list of tribes is this tribe of Dan which we're going to see focused on when we get to chapter 18 in a few minutes. Um, why? Why did they fall away? Why did they fail? These other tribes, why did they fail to obey what God commanded? Why did they end up in the places that we are going to see that they ended up? A couple of, couple of verses to read from Judges chapter 2. I'm just going to read these over you. Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it, it talked about... There was this generation that obeyed God. And then it says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They did not consider the Lord. They did not acknowledge him. It's not that they didn't know about the feast days, the sacrificial system, the, the, the priesthood was still in place. But they did not acknowledge him. And as we're going to see four times in our passage today, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so these, this generation chose to reject and ignore not just God, but the commands of God. And then in Judges 2, 1 through 3, before this, it says, The angel of the Lord, what does the Lord have to say about this? The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal, Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And of course, then follows the crazy cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. And with each, with each, with each cycle, that spiral got deeper and deeper and more and more corrupt and more and more wicked. Which brings us to Judges 17 and 18, where we will see 
a couple of episodes explain for us that, that reveal how deep the corruption went and what its consequences were. Now, when does this take place? So far as you've, as you've been tracking through the book of Judges, there's this progressive flow of time. And then we get to verse, or just, excuse me, to chapter 17 and 18, and it appears that that flow of time ends. Most scholars see chapter 17 through 21 as an appendix to the book. And so it's, it's not probably after Samson. This is actually probably a, most likely happened near the beginning of this season of the judges. In fact, one of the characters we're going to read about today is listed as the direct grandson of Moses. And there's some debate, is this a, a further descendant or is this actually the grandson of Moses the way we would understand that, that word? And most scholars believe that this, these episodes that we're going to read about happen early in the history of the judges. Key phrase, found four times in the last four chapters. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And twice it adds, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So why did they end up where they were? They absolutely rejected the authority of God. There was no king in Israel. A couple things happening there. First off, when this was written, maybe by, by Samuel later, it's an un, or it's, excuse me, it's a biased um, uh, love of, of the monarchy, saying we need a king, we need someone to lead us. But essentially there was no one leading Israel, which is the greatest shame ever, because remember who offered to lead them. God himself, he said, I will rule with you. Like, I'll be with you and I'll be your God. You don't need a king. They rejected his authority. There was, no, there was no person to step in and take the authority of the entire nation. And so they're lost without authority, rejected by them, rejecting the word and the truth and the commands of God. And that's why they've ended up where they are. So whenever our, our episodes this morning take place, what we witness is unguarded hearts, in unchecked disobedience. When we've rejected the authority of God, what it ends in is unguarded hearts in unchecked disobedience. And that is the pipe glue at the bottom of that hole just eating away at the core of Israel. So that being said, I'm gonna pray for us. We'll read the same passage one more time and get after it. You guys ready? Lord, help us. Help me, God. Would you say what you wanna say today? Would you have your way in our hearts? And Lord, lead us and guide us to repentance. I pray, Lord, earnestly, if there's anyone in this room, man, woman, or child, who has never surrendered to you in faith, but Lord, they've kept you at arm's distance. I pray, Lord, that today you would remind them of their need of a savior because of the deep corruption of sin. And Lord, I pray those of us who do know you, Lord, you would help us to use the word as a mirror today to look into our own hearts and see where these same cycles exist in miniature form. And Lord, bring us closer to you. We need you more than anything in this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, Judges 17, 1 through 6. Let's read this very encouraging piece of scripture. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, not to be confused with the future prophet Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. 
as if we get to make those demands upon the Lord. To make a carved image and a metal image. Yikes. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod of household and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So just some thoughts about this passage. What a family mess. And what a mess of a family. I bet a lot of us in here can relate to some of that family drama. But look at what we have here. Here's a son, a kid, who steals a ton of money from his own mom. She then calls down curses upon his head or upon whoever the thief's head is. Maybe she knows, maybe this is a guilt trip, maybe she doesn't know who the thief was. Either way, she starts calling down curses and even makes sure that her son hears about these curses. And so he gets nervous, believing that these curses come true, and not out of a righteous heart, but out of a, out of a scared heart, he confesses. He says, Mom, I, I took it, I have it. Please, please don't want me to be cursed. Like, please, God, don't let me be, don't let me be cursed. So then his mom brags on her sweet baby's honesty and integrity. Oh, my son, the saint. He confessed to thieving 1,100 pieces of silver from me. Oh, God, would you bless him. And this really interesting thing happens. She then invokes the covenantal name of God, Lord in all caps, Yahweh. This, this, this name of God. That God revealed to his people, I am your God and you are my people. We are in relationship together. This precious, uh, pregnant name of God, just speaking of his faithfulness and his long suffering and his love and his future promises and all the things he's done. That, that word Lord in all caps is a big deal. And she invokes that in order to take this money and then say, For the Lord, I'm going to directly disobey Exodus 20, verse 4, and have carved images made. We're going to make idols for this house so that we will be a religious house for the Lord. And and kind of the the greatest uh, uh, funny thing here is the word Micah uh, means one who is like Yahweh. And so they've they've just totally jaunted away from the truth. Uh, Micah goes so far as to ordain one of his sons, like he's Aaron, to be the priest in his house. So what a mess. It's a conglomeration of religion. Uh, It's taking Yahweh and making him work for you in the way you want to, and then taking a little bit of this from the Canaanites, a little bit of this from the Philistines, and we're going to be like this, and we're going to be religious. We're going to have religion. We're going to be pious in that way, but we're going to do it in a way that totally rejects our God that totally ignores his authority, ignores his word, like blatantly ignores it, direct commandments, no other gods before me, no carved images. Eh, we still want it, right? And and, and tell me this isn't a lot like today. We may not have little carved images in our house. I've got plenty of bobbleheads in my office, but I I don't think it's the same thing. I'm welcome to be challenged on that. Um, But idolatry is rampant. There's this this mashup of religion and religious experience even amongst Christians in the United States. Many people who claim Christ have a mashup of religious and worldview thinking. I'll take some of Jesus, I'll sprinkle in some new age, 
I'll carve an idol out of my capitalism or my political affiliation. I'll buy fully into secular humanism as a virtue. And then I'll just slap the name Yahweh on it and call it good. And, and this is the story of a lot of American Christianity. And it breaks our hearts. But, but, but we better be careful because most of us are products of when and where we've grown up. And so these things sneak into our lives as well. How many times have you heard Bible-believing Christians say things that aren't in the Bible and claim them as true? This is a story as old, well, as at least as Judges, that we have this mashup of religious thinking that begins to eat at and destruct and deform our thinking of the authority of the God of Israel in our life. And so we ultimately sometimes reject his authority because we've chosen to do what is right in our own eyes. We are prone to idolatry. And like Micah, when we do that, we pass it on to our kids too, um, which, is, which is terrifying, right? Now, Following this episode, we, we, get, we meet a young Levite in the story. We're not going to read, read the verses, but we, we find a Levite who's left the area of Bethlehem, and he's traveling around the region of, of, of Israel trying to find a place to rest or to live. And Micah uh, meets him. Uh, this, this Levite happens to run into Micah where Micah's house is, where Micah has his shrine up, and Micah recruits him to be a priest in his house, and in the shrine that he has set up, he gives him a sweet place to stay, some sweet clothes, and a healthy salary. And then we read this in verses 12 to 13. It says this, And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord, all caps again, that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So he's wanting to even look like the true religion. He's wanting to even look like the pattern that God had set up for them. Oh, now God's really going to bless me because I've brought a Levite into my house of idolatry. God has to bless me now. So who is this Levite? Well, we find out later in chapter 18, this is the grandson of Moses. So let me just say as an aside that ancestry is no guarantee of a faithful life. And so young people who your parents may be dragging you to church, can I just say over you, take this faith for your own. Good ancestors in the faith is no guarantee that you will be good in the faith. Seek the Lord while he may be found. He is worth seeking. Okay, off my soapbox. Um, it's actually been discovered, it's very funny, it's actually been discovered that at some point a Jewish scribe added a letter to the word Moses there uh, to make it, uh, change it into Manasseh. Um, probably to protect the dignity of Moses. And so in later generations, the, the Israelites were so embarrassed that the grandson of Moses would, would be a priest in an idolatrous household that they, one, one of the scribes changed the letter. Uh, pretty funny. Um, the point, what's the point of all this for us? The point is this. Rejection of God's word and authority leads to barren religion. If you're a note taker, I've got just a few things for you to write down today, and this is the first one. Rejection of God's authority and his word leads to barren religion, fruitless religion. I got saved at the age of 15, almost 16, and I was saved into a really healthy church with a great youth group and lots of mentors, and I was discipled well, and, and, and things were going, were going well. And then I turned 21, 
And, and to make a long story, a, a really long story, extremely short, a couple of weeks after my 21st birthday was a, was a pretty small compromise in my faith, which led to an incrementally larger compromise, which led to the spiral. Just a spiral. And eight months later, working at Academy Sporting Goods in Humble, a place where I had, an, I had had an active ministry going on, leading co-workers to Christ, all the things. There was a new co-worker, and we were having a conversation, and somehow church came up. And I had been still playing the game. I was still religious. I still went to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, worked in child care, served in child care, was an assistant Sunday school teacher in the youth group, carried my Bible with me, but, but that, was, that was it. I wasn't pursuing Jesus at all. I was only pursuing the flesh. And my life had become so that this girl, after watching my life for a couple of weeks, even just at work, she looked at me and goes, oh, you're a Christian? I never would have thought that. Which, as you can imagine, was the dagger. I ended that conversation as soon as I could. I walked back to the bathroom at the academy and humble. I looked in the mirror, didn't recognize myself, and just began to weep bitterly. And uh, the definition of the prodigal and the Lord pulled me out of the sty, praise God. Or never too far from his grace, by the way. Um, but there was, a, there was a mark of religion on my life. I could still quote the verses I'd memorized in my earlier years. I still showed up to church. I would have even still defended the faith. But there was no Jesus in my life. And so my religion was absolutely fruitless. I had rejected God's authority I had decided to start doing what was right in my own eyes. I was not living according to the word that I knew in my heart. And my religion was totally fruitless. At best, it was fruitless. And at worst, which it actually probably was, it was producing rotten fruit. Just rotten, rotten fruit. And we see the same thing here in Judges. For Micah's family, it was at best fruitless but it ultimately produced rottenness. Later in the same story we're going to see later, Micah has his household god stolen by the tribe of Dan, and it grieves him. And, he, and he, as they're walking away with the images and the ephod and all the things that he had in his own shrine, listen to what he says. You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. What have I left? The idols that he had constructed in his life, of course, proved to not be very good gods. And he was left absolutely empty. The Israelite people continually rejected God's authority and they failed to obey his word. And this episode is proof and indicative of how far it went into personal homes. And when the people of God divorce themselves from the commands of God, it goes very wrong. I want to say that again. When the people of God, and that includes us, divorce ourselves from the commands of God, it will go very wrong. No fruit to be found. At best, no fruit in emptiness. At worst, rotten fruit working against the things of God. Rejection of God's word and authority leads to barren religion. Now, before we continue the story, I want to, make, I want to pause and make something crystal clear. I've got a couple of verses to read for us that are just, will just serve as, as the point I want to make. Uh, verses, uh, chapter 17, verse 5. The man We've already read this, but the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. 
Next chapter, 18, uh, verse 14. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. Here's my point, and it's just a brief one. Rejection of God's word and authority leads to blatant idolatry. Rejection of God's word and authority leads to blatant idolatry. What maybe started out as a mishmash of religious uh, thinking and, and, and actions became just ultimately blatant idolatry. Just in the face of God, here's another God I choose instead of you. All of us, listen, all of us likely, we're going to get to heaven and find out that some corner of our theology was a bit off or our doctrine that we would have died on a hill for. God would be like, you missed it, bro. Uh, So all of us have one of those maybe here or there. And certainly each of us has some sin in our life. Um, But check the warning here in narrative form. Outright denial of God's commands only ends in one place, idolatry. Outright ignoring God's commands only ends there. Idolatry will creep in. The idolatry witness here was blatant, in your face, a dedicated part of the house they built to worship a God other than the true God. This is the natural outcome of unchecked disobedience, and each of us must take this warning seriously. Sometimes the warnings of Scripture are explicitly said. Sometimes we read a story, and that warning better be jumping off the page at us. Unchecked disobedience in my life will end in idolatry, and idolatry steals me from the God who loves me. Brutal, brutal stuff here. Let's take it seriously. All right, let's keep reading. We're going to flip over to chapter 18 now, pick up the story. We're going to read here as well, verses 1 through 6. In those days, it says again, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. Now, it's not likely that they actually knew this Levite. It's more likely that they recognized an accent potentially from the region of Galilee. But either way, they recognized his voice, and they recognized him as a Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I've become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, who knows where he got this answer, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. And here again is a priest taking or invoking the covenantal name of God outside of the bounds which God has set. Remember, there is no king in Israel, no authority like Joshua or Moses to keep them in line, and clearly, clearly uh, they, they've, they've taken it and run with it. Now, why is Dan, this tribe of Dan, seeking an inheritance? Weren't they given an inheritance? Yes, they were. So why are they seeking a new one? Um, they were given one, a very sweet one. Watch this. On the Mediterranean coast, 
with plenty of fishing and commerce and beauty. That's the, that's the land that God gave them. Here is the Mediterranean beach. It's all yours. They apparently didn't want that inheritance. And so we can all shake our heads at the tribe of Dan right now. Like, what are you thinking? It's the Mediterranean, man. Like, woo, right? And they said, nah, we're good. We want, we want to find our own land. So why weren't they in it? They didn't follow the commands of God. Uh, one of the tribes, like I said earlier, one of the tribes in, in chapter 1 that did not push out uh, the, the, the evil people living in the land. Why? Why didn't they? Well, maybe the armies were too tough. Regardless, they did not obey in faith. For whatever reason, they decided, the leading theory is that the armies there were, they thought were too tough to take out. But, but whatever, whatever the reason was, what is crystal clear is they did not obey in faith. God said, go, I will go with you, push them out, it's yours, go take it. I've already won the battle. And they did not obey in faith. And now, because they didn't, they have to search for a place to live. And so once again, we see people who have no desire for true obedience, but still want the blessing. No desire for true obedience, but still crave the blessing. Raise your hand if it hurts a little bit, right? Like most of us who are of a certain age can look back and go, yeah, I've been there. No, no desire for true, true obedience, but man, want this blessing. So they asked this priest who is priesting over an idolatrous temple to inquire of Yahweh if they will succeed in their disobedient conquest. How many times have we known believers or known ourselves to go about things we know God doesn't have for us but still pray that he would let us succeed? So many problems with this, but he gives them an unrooted assurance. Like, yeah, go ahead, God's watching you. And God was indeed watching, but not in the way I think that this, uh, this Levite priest uh, intended for them to understand. And what's funny is they even follow the pattern of conquest here. Will God go with us? We want to go. Will he go with us? And so they, they understand the pattern. They understand the word. They know the history of their people. And they're trying to go about their, excuse me, they're trying to go about their own way and stick the Jesus bumper sticker on their way. Uh, they, they, do, they do so outside of God's blessing. And now in the following verses, verses 7 through 26, we're not going to read this long passage. Well, here's, here's kind of how the rest of the episode goes. The, the Danites, this tribe, these spies, they now they'll go back and report, and they, they're now seeking a new land not given by God. They spy out a city called Laish up in the north. It is a city of wealth, and the Bible calls it a city of peace. It calls them an unsuspecting, essentially peaceful people. So these Danites go, well, that's not the Philistines and the Amorites. These are a bunch of wimps. We can take them, no problem. We don't even need faith for this land. Let's just go take it. So they go outside of God's blessing, they go outside of his obedience, and they, they go and they're, they're going to start marching towards the city. And, and along the way, they steal Micah's idols and images, and they even convince the priest to come with them, appealing to his pride with the opportunity to be the priest over a whole tribe instead of just one family. They say, like, listen, come with us. We'll give you more money, and you can be the you can be like the priest over a whole tribe. And so he's like, yeah, let's go, right? And so they escape. They're taking all the, the ephod and all the carved images and the priest with them. Micah comes out, sees what they're doing. He's angry. You're taking my gods. What are you doing to me? And they, say, they basically threaten him, like, go back to your house before it ends poorly for you. And so here they are. They're, they're, on, this, they're on this journey. So what's, what's the point? What's our next thing to write down? Here's the point. Rejection of God's word and authority leads to botched faith. 
When I reject the authority of God in my life and I reject the truth of his word in my life, the things that God has given me to do in faith, I just blow it. We drop the ball. This is absolutely what the tribe of Dan did. A quick story, many years ago, me and my wife and some other couple friends of ours went on a trip. And um, on this trip, we're doing the vacation things, right? Eating the places and seeing the things and going to the shows. And uh, near the end of the trip, I had a $20 bill in my pocket that was my last 20 for the week. And I had something I wanted to spend it on. I'd seen it. I was like, that's the thing I'm going to. I was holding on to that money thing. Oh, maybe I'll talk myself out of it. But this is mine. It's my 20. I want it for me. I'm going to have it. And we're going out in a car. We're, we're heading to a show. And we're near the place we're going to go see the show. And we're at a red light. And I look to my right. And I see a homeless man sitting against the pole of the red light. And I immediately feel the Holy Spirit go, it's not your 20 anymore. Give it away. Roll the window down. Give him the 20. Trust me. And I just immediately started doing the thing like, oh, I don't know, God. What if the light turns green? Then it's awkward and people are waiting on us. But, but I really want, I want this 20, God. Like, it's my 20. Like, I earned the money. I've already tithed. Like, come on, God. And I just started having this conversation in my head trying to ignore what I clearly heard from the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. Lots of dry air. Um, and I just, I just started playing that game in my mind. I knew what God wanted me to do. But I just started finding reasons to disobey. And sure enough, that light turned green. And the car moves on. And I'm telling you, I'm in the back seat on the right passenger side. And as we go under the green light, I feel the green go. And I, I just, I, immediately the Holy Spirit goes, well. And I knew, like, I, I've blown it. I've botched this whole thing. And I start sweating. I'm like, I've missed an opportunity. And in our, the place we are going to go see was really close. We make it one more block, whip into the parking garage, park the car, and I tell my wife, my friends, I'll be back. I got to handle something. And I start jogging. Like, listen, I don't, I don't jog for anything, okay? My favorite sport was baseball because the, the furthest I ever had to run at one point was 90 feet unless it went over the fence, okay? Like, that's why I chose baseball. I don't want to run, but I'm, I'm running now. Like, I got to find this guy. I'm going to try to make up for this botched obedience. I make it out of the parking garage, down the street, Get to the red light, the guy's gone. And so I start looking around, like, where, where is he? I'll, try, I'll chase him down. I'll terrify him. I don't care. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go stick this 20 in his pocket. Thank you. <clears throat> and, of course, I, I, never, I never found him. So I, I had to walk back, find my friend. So, like, what happened? I was like, it doesn't matter. Um, it was a mess. I missed the opportunity. There was an opportunity for obedience that I said no to. And there is an unknown blessing that I left on the table. Don't know what that blessing was. I'll likely never know what that blessing was. What if I'd obeyed? Now, that homeless man, I am positive that God met his need. He is a father to the fatherless. Amen? But it's me who, who messed up. It's me who missed out. What if, right? What if Dan had trusted God enough to walk into that land and say, we're taking this in the name of the Lord. What if? But they didn't. And we will never know the, the backside of that question. This is tragic in every way. And when we refuse to trust God, when we refuse to take him at his word, we step outside of his favor, his protection, and his blessing. And this is what Dan did. He stepped outside of his favor, they stepped outside of his protection, and they stepped outside of his blessing. And what the Lord proclaimed in Judges 2, 
this people will be a thorn to you as will their gods. This level of idolatry and disobedience wasn't stumbled upon. It was bold. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, right? And believers in every generation should take heed. This is the outcome of rejecting God's authority in my life. Rejection of God's word and authority leads to botched faith. Last passage, 18 verses 27 through 32. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. Key there, they set it up for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses... And his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. They took their disobedience all the way to its logical end. They took the easy way out. Laish was a peaceful and unsuspecting people, whereas the land that they were given by God required faith to conquer. Full of Amorites, full of Philistines. Another aside, just briefly, the easy way is rarely the obedient way. God is calling us to faith. Their idolatry remained and flourished all the way until the captivity. Now, what captivity? Depending on which scholar you read. Some think, some think it's the captivity uh, in, in, you know, around 700 BC when, when, when the Israelites were carried off. Some think it was when the ark was carried off. Either way, what we know is several centuries went by where this city was most known for its idolatry. It eventually became the home to a golden calf under King Jeroboam in the wicked northern kingdom. And then watch this. Ultimately, the tribe is left out of even future blessings. When we read Revelation chapter 7 and the 12,000 from each 12 tribes of Israel is listed, guess who's not listed in the tribes? Dan. Manasseh replaced Dan in future blessings. That's where their idolatry ended. They don't even exist as a tribe anymore, not even in Revelation. And then Samson, who you read about recently, probably the most wicked judge, guess which tribe he was a part of? Dan. So what's my point? What's the point? Last one for you to write down. Rejection of God's word and authority leads to broad consequences. Rejection of God's word and authority leads to broad consequences consequences. When we disobey God, it is rare that we are the only ones to suffer consequences. Church, we know, right, that disobedience has horizontal implications. At best, listen, I, as a Christ follower, when I sin, at best, here's what happens. Even if I don't get caught, even if nothing happens, every time I willfully sin, here are some outcomes. One, it makes it a little easier to do that sin the next time. Two, I've built a wall between myself and God that I now have to confess to be restored in. And three, at least for a moment or a season, it prevents me from being the brother of Christ to my wife, to my daughter, and to my peers that I'm supposed to be. There is no such thing as an unhorizontal affecting sin. 
our willful sin and our willful rejection of God's authority in our life has broad consequences always. Can I say something else, though? The flip side is also true. Here's the hope here, the implicit hope. Trusting God's authority and obeying God's word in my life will lead to broad consequences. You, mark, you let your life be marked with obedience to God. He will use you in the lives of others in ways that will make your head spin. This is the implicit hope here. So they've rejected his authority. They've rejected his word. It's led to barren religion, blatant idolatry, botched faith, and broad consequences. But the opposite could be true of, of you and I in this room today. If we walk out of this door and say, this week, today, I will honor God's authority in my life and I will submit to the teachings of his word, he will produce real fruit in my life, real obedience in my life. He will be my God and I will be his son. And the consequences will be beautiful and eternal. That's the God we serve. And so I just want to close with, with just a few thoughts. What do we do? What do we do with these things we've read? <clears throat> well, one, let's give praise to Jesus. Amen. Because of his accomplishments and his finished work on the cross, my inheritance is sealed. Not because of my efforts, not because of, of my goodness, but because of, of who he is and what he's done. And just placing my faith in him seals that. Repenting of my sin, repenting of my own ways of doing things, repenting of, of the idea of it, I get to do what's right in my own eyes and instead coming and surrender to King Jesus. Let it not be said of us that in those days there was no, there was no king in Jesse's life. Let it not be said of us that in those days there was no king in Hans's life, right? Like when he's our king, the script is flipped and our inheritance is sealed. And so we don't have to come before God with our, with our tails between our legs, afraid of retribution. His throne is one of grace. Amen? And so if you are in the room and you recognize these same cycles in your life in miniature form, your name will not be blotted out of the book. Return. Come to him. He loves you. Jesus' righteousness is enough for us. So one, let us start with praising the Lord that he, he fixed the problem. Two, hold fast to what is actually true. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15 say this, we ought to always give thanks to God for you. It's, it's the Apostle Paul writing to this church that he loves. Brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers... Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Remember what was said of the Israelites. Then arose a generation who did not know the Lord. 
let us continue to hold on to the things we know are true and let them rule our life. Three, fear God. Clearly Micah and his mom and the grandson of Moses and the tribe of Dan did not fear God. Fearing God is the beginning of all wisdom and when we acknowledge him, are mindful of him, he will make our paths straight, amen? So let us make sure that the fear of God is at the center of our life. He is God. He is the king. Our lives are best submitted to him. Finally, let's take the Apostle John's advice in the last sentence of the book of 1 John. Beware of idols. They are crouching at our door and they want us for themselves. But anything other than Jesus makes a really bad God not limited to, and especially me, ourselves. We make terrible gods. And so may we use the scripture as a mirror this week and ask this question, how will it be? Will I do what is right in my own eyes this week? Or will I look to the words of the ones who loves my soul?